When we left our story last week in Exodus, God's people were in, of course, dire circumstances, very difficult circumstances. God had planted them in Egypt, and yes, they were multiplying, they were growing, but they were also enslaved and being threatened by Pharaoh with infanticide. Remember that. So things were not going well for the people of Israel. Now imagine 400 years of this madness, 400 years. Where was God during those 400 years? He's not named once at all in chapter 1, and for most of chapter 2, he's not named either. What is God doing with his people? Why is he silent? Why is he absent? What do you do, my friends, when you're in the midst of difficulty and God seems to be totally absent? Do you kick and scream and get angry? Do you complain to a friend? Do you withdraw from life? Do you withdraw from people? Do you distract yourself with activities or escape your pain with a book or a movie or numb up your pain with an addiction? What do you do when things are hard and God seems absent? William Cooper was an 18th century hymn writer and he asked these questions too because he struggled all his life with depression, significant depression. He prayed almost every day for God to remove his depression and God did not remove it. Every day, depression. His normal day was one of depression. Joy in his life was the exception. Can you imagine living like that? Some of you can imagine living like that. Well, one night, William Cooper wanted to kill himself by throwing himself in the Thames River in London. So he called a cab driver and he told him to take him to this river. But this thick fog prevented the driver from finding this river. And so after driving around and getting awfully lost, the cab driver gave up and said, okay, William, get out of the cab. I don't know where I'm at. We got to stop this. And so William Cooper gets out of his cab. He looks up and he sees his house. He sees his own front door right there in front of him. So he goes inside, overwhelmed by God's love and mercy for him. Because God sent this fog. God got this guy lost in this fog. So he was overwhelmed by God's love for him, and he wrote these words. Listen. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Incredible words. Those, those last words, that last stanza in particular, has resonated with me for about a decade now since I first heard it. Behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. For many of us, it may not be paralyzing depression, but it's something else. It's chronic pain. It's slowly developing, but lethal diseases like cancer. 
It's ongoing relational strain with a, a family member. It's job loss. It's, it's grieving over the loss of a loved one. It's darkness that will not lift. It's, it's clouds that will not break. What do we do in the midst of all this? God seems to be absent. God seems to be silent. And all we can see is the frowning providence of God. We can't see his smile that's lurking behind those clouds. Some of you are helping others who can't see God's hidden smile behind their difficult circumstances. What do you say? What do you do? How do you help them? My prayer is that Exodus 2 will help us to recognize God's hidden smile. We're going to see it in two places. We're going to see it in the early years of Moses, and we're going to see it in the middle years of Moses. And three people are going to help us recognize God's hidden smile in the life of Moses here in chapter 2. First person is Moses, who wrote Exodus chapter 2. Years after all of this occurred, he wrote Exodus chapter 2. He's going to help us to see God's hidden smile. The second person is Stephen, the early church leader. In Acts chapter 7, he was being interrogated by the Jewish council, and he reviews the Old Testament story. And when he gets to Moses, he slows down, and he talks about his life, his early life. So we're going to look at Stephen and his commentary. And the last person is the author of the book of Hebrews. He also, in his great chapter of faith, chapter 11, talks about Moses' parents and talks about Moses. So let me pray and then we'll read the first section. Father, we ask that you would speak, that in your mercy, that you would speak to your hurting people this morning. Father, we know that not everyone in this room may be hurting. Some of us are coming in here with praises on our hearts. Oh, but you use us, all of us, Lord, to help others. And you prepare us, Lord, all of us, because suffering is coming to our lives. So would you bolster our faith in Jesus? Would you bolster our faith in the goodness of God as we look at this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. So first we see God's hidden smile in Moses' early life. I'm going to start reading chapter 1, verse 22, and then that'll carry us through chapter 2, verse 10. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. 
So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Imagine feeling what Moses' mom must have felt as she released this, this basket, this ark down the river. The pain, the, the heartache she must have felt as she was releasing her precious baby boy. You know, I, I think she had hope, a little bit of hope as well. Why do I say that? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 23 says that by faith, Moses' mother formulated this plan. By faith, Moses' mom concocted this plan to, to release baby Moses. It must have taken tremendous faith to put her child in this ark and float it down the river, of course, right? Tremendous faith. What would happen to this child? Would the crocodiles get this child? Would, would the child die of starvation or drowning? Who would pick up this child? So she trusted God. Because what choice did she have? Pharaoh's edict went forth. Every boy is going to die in the Nile. Well, then we read verses 5 and 6. What an amazing turn of events, right? Verses 5 and 6. Of all the people this baby could have floated to, he floats to the palace and the Pharaoh's daughter. Maybe we could imagine her response to be one of disgust. You know, someone's trying to scheme their way out of my father's decree. Maybe she would try to kill this little baby in the now. Maybe, maybe she'd try to hunt down the, the mom and put her in prison. But she feels sorry for him in verse 6. She has pity on this baby. She has compassion for little baby Moses. What an incredible turn of events that God would use the, the maternal and nurturing instincts of this young woman to protect and preserve this helpless little baby. God's hand is all over all of this, isn't it? And after all this hoopla, Moses got to grow up in his own home. In his own home. His real mom could look after her son with no fear, no threats, and she got paid for doing that. She got paid. So Moses grew up probably until the age of seven or eight in his own household. No doubt he learned about God. No doubt he learned about God's covenant love, his committed uh, relationship to the people of Israel. No doubt God, uh, Moses learned about these promises that God had given to his people. So God's hand was all over the situation. And then he gets adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He's brought into the very household of Pharaoh. Acts chapter 7, Stephen says, Moses learned all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in word and deed. So he had the brains, he had the brawn. Charlton Heston, right? That's what we see. Well, he was trained and educated by the best of the best. Remember, Egypt was a superpower at this time, not just militarily, but their education was superb. And so he got the best training in politics and leadership and military tactics and diplomacy. Perhaps he had lots of experiences on the battlefield. We don't know. But this guy was really prepared and educated by the Egyptians. Clearly, God is winking at us throughout this whole episode. Now, think about it. God used Pharaoh's final scheme to inaugurate Egypt's final demise. 
Because Pharaoh's order in chapter 1, verse 22, to kill all these boys, that set off a chain of event that would lead Moses to this palace so that he can be prepared to lead Israel out of Egypt. God's like, Pharaoh, you want to throw some boys in the Nile so they don't grow up to become soldiers who can free my people? Okay, let's throw one of those boys in the Nile and then I'm going to raise him up as a prince of Egypt. And you're going to educate him for me. Thank you very much, says God, right? He drops his mic. Do you see God's hidden smile? Do you see God's mysterious ways in this story? We may think things are falling apart all around us, but God is still doing incredible things in our midst. And where was Israel during all of this? They were still slaves. While this is going on, they were still slaves. They were in the fields. They were, they were making buildings and, and, and storehouses for Pharaoh. They were getting beaten. They were getting tortured while all of this was going on. And they didn't see any of this. They wouldn't know any of this for years, in fact. But meanwhile, God is doing something, isn't he? God is working. He's working methodically. Yeah, he's working slowly, but he's working methodically. He's working surprisingly. And he's working for the good of his people. Behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. At the start, Moses' mom didn't see God's smiling face in these circumstances. But again, according to Hebrews chapter 11, she had faith. And out of faith, she became a person of action. Her faith made her active. Notice what she did by faith. She made a plan, put together this ark, put it on the river. She slowly started to execute this plan, which included sending her daughter, likely, to watch over this ark. And she responded thoughtfully as things began to unfold. At each step, she responded with action and thoughtfulness and care. When the darkness will not lift, what can we do? When, when, uh, when we can't see God's hidden smile in our circumstances, what can we do? What did Moses' mom do? She did the next thing. She did the next thing. There's a lesson here for hurting people. Do the next thing. Elizabeth Elliot was the wife of famous missionary Jim Elliot. Many of you have heard of Jim Elliot. And she not only lost Jim to Ecuadorian uh, tribesmen, she lost her second husband. She remarried for a third time. And when she was battling intense grief, an old Saxon poem uh, helped her get through it, built up her faith. Let me read you part of this poem. Moment by moment, let down from heaven, time, opportunity, guidance are given. Fear not tomorrow's child of the king. Trust them with Jesus. Do the next thing. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand, who placed it before thee with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence, safe beneath his wing. Leave all resultings, just do the next thing. Isn't that beautiful? You know, fog, I think, is a good picture for us. If we're walking through thick fog, the only thing you can see is, you know, the hands in front of you, your feet, and, and just a couple feet ahead of you. 
More often than not, this is as much as God will reveal to us about what to do next, especially if we're hurting. There's something about pain that often makes perception cloudy, right? It's hard for us to see. It's easy for us to be confused when we're pained or hurting. Pain can be overbearing. It can paralyze us. It can suck the life out of us, confuse us. So we do the next thing, just what's in front of us. Jenny's dad shared with me how he was able to deal with some pretty terrible, awful pain in his life about 15 years ago when a bad accident in their family uh, resulted in the death of someone. Now, I remember him telling me just a few years ago, he said, you know, the only way I could make it day in and day out was simply to focus on and to pray hard towards the next thing in front of me. So he would wake up every morning and it took everything in him just to put his feet on the ground. And he would coach himself and he would pray himself through those moments. Okay, God, just help me get into the bathroom. God, I, I need to brush my teeth and I need to wash my face. Just, just help me get through these moments. Okay, I need to make breakfast for my kids. And they're hurting too. Help me to get into the kitchen. Do the next thing. Pain or no pain in life, what a great lesson for us, right? What a great lesson for us. You are only called to be faithful with what's directly ahead of you. You We're finite beings. We are limited. We are bounded by specific moments. And we live only in one moment. It's this moment. And we're called to be faithful in this moment. So I'm called to faithfully preach in this moment. You're called to faithfully listen in this moment. So if you're sleeping right now, God wants us to be faithful now. Tomorrow there will be new things to do, but today you've got 10 things, 11, 12 things to do. It's on your plate, and he wants you to be faithful there. He wants to pour all of your energies, all of your your concern, all of your prayers around today, around this moment. When you're suffering, brothers and sisters, do the next thing. Some of you are helping others go through difficulty How do you help them? You help them do the next thing. You know, sometimes we think that we need to convey some profound theological truth to them that's going to alter the the trajectory of their life. It's going to change their heart. It's going to be magnificent, powerful, awesome. And we put pressure on ourselves to do that and to speak those words. And sometimes God uses us to do that. But perhaps God simply wants you to make dinner for them. Because you look at the time and it's 5.30 and they're hungry. And the next thing for them to do is eat. Church, if we're going to be a hospital for hurting and broken people, we need to help others do the next thing. So we see God's hidden smile in Moses' early life. Well, what about as he grows up? Let me read verses 11 through 22. We're going to see God's hidden smile in Moses' middle years. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them and their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, glancing this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? 
Are you thinking of killing me as you kill the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. God's hidden smile. Hebrews tells us that Moses did this first act, this, this murder, actually, this, this whole thing by faith. He went out and he saw God's people by faith. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. In other words, he began to identify for the first time, not as an Egyptian, but as a Hebrew, publicly. He began to forsake his old Egyptian life. He began to embrace this new life as a Hebrew. And I think he began to remember God's promises to the Hebrew people as well. And he wanted to do something about it. So what did he do? So he goes out by faith, and he doesn't do the next thing by faith. Verses 11 and 12, he sees this injustice and he acts. He he kills this Egyptian, he hides the body so he wouldn't get in trouble. The next day, he tries to play mediator between two of his fellow Jewish folks. And they're like, Moses, get out of here, dude. Who are you? You know, you, you live in that palace over there. You're an Egyptian prince. What do you have to do with us? Now listen to Stephen's New Testament description of Moses' motivation. This is really important. Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. So in other words, Moses recognized that at this point in time, God was going to use him to deliver Israel. But Moses tries to save his people on his own terms, in his own strength at this point, with his own ingenuity at this point. God hadn't given him any instructions to, uh, to do this, to save Israel in this way. He was being impulsive. He took things into his own hands. And what he ends up doing is destroying his credibility. Because after this story, nobody trusted him. The Egyptians didn't trust him. Pharaoh's trying to kill him. And his own people didn't trust him either. Brothers and sisters, do the next thing, yes, but do the next thing in the right way at the right time and with God's strength. Not like Moses. You know, sometimes when we can't read God's providence in front of us, we're tempted to seize control. We're tempted to grab the reins from God. We're tempted to uh, uh, do the next thing in the wrong way. And Moses' instinct here to save his people, that's a good thing, but this was not the right time. This is certainly not the right way. 
Moses was all over do the next thing, but he didn't do the next right thing in this situation. And so he leaves Egypt in a hurry. He heads to Midian, which is just east of Egypt. And then he, we find himself, we find him, excuse me, at this well in verse 15. Now imagine for a moment your Moses. Imagine how he must have felt as he was resting at this well. This was not the life that he had imagined for himself. This is not that life at all. He, he thought God was grooming him to be this great deliverer. He thought um, he would use all of his power and his skills and his connections as this Egyptian prince to rescue God's people. Now is the time. But he's sitting at a well, and nobody trusted him. And nobody at this point even knows him in Midian. This was not how he thought life would unfold. Have you ever felt like that, friends? 35 years into your life, 45 years into your life, 55 years into your life, this is not how I thought my life would unfold. Well, we see another conflict in verses 16 and 17. It's different. It's between these women and these shepherds, and then Moses intervenes, much like he had earlier, actually. But there's some differences here, too. There's rescue, but there's no murder. There's initiative, there's courage, but it's the right kind of initiative and courage, right? In the first scene, earlier, uh, we just talked about that. Moses intervenes to save, but the result is murder, and then he gets booted out of Egypt. In the second scene, Moses intervenes to save again, yes, but the result is that he becomes this hero. Right? He, he, he gets called into this home, and, and he's given a wife, and he starts a family, and he has... He has some land, and he has a job now as a shepherd. It still feels kind of hard. Life is not easy. He probably has a bitter taste in his mouth. We see that as he names his son Gershom, which means an alien, sojourner. But at least this time, Moses does the, the right next thing. So God's growing Moses through this. My first exposure to Moses was the Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston and all that. That was my first exposure. Maybe it was yours as well. Well, Ten Commandments, the movie, depicts Moses in Midian for just a a few years. But we learn in the book of Acts, actually, that Moses sojourned in Midian for 40 years. 40 years. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian. What did he do? Well, he, he lived a pretty ordinary life. He had a family, he had some kids, he loved his wife, he was a shepherd, took care of some sheep. That sounds kind of strange to us. I mean, why would God put this man in the household of Egypt to prepare him to be God's instrument of redemption only to have him screw up royally and then get him 40 years in Midian working as a shepherd? Why would God do that? Where is God's hidden smile in this story. Well, first of all, God is clearly continuing to prepare Moses. 40 years in Egypt, Moses got a big head, and he tried to do some things in his own strength. So for another 40 years in Midian, Moses was being stripped of his ego, was being purified and refined in a very intentional manner. He was also learning some basic skills as a shepherd, which would be useful as he led God's people later. So 40 years in Egypt, Moses learned to be something, but he thought he was everything. 40 years in Midian, Moses learned that he was nothing and God was everything. 
as we will see as the chapters unfold. Some great lessons for us as well as we're waiting on God to move and work. Moses was also walking the very path Israel would soon to walk. So like Moses, Israel too would need to be miraculously saved from Egypt. Like Moses, Israel too would need to be weaned and purified in the wilderness. So in God's good providence, he prepares this leader to go through the same experiences that he would lead his people through in the future. Isn't isn't God so thoughtful and wise? And his care so, so intricate in the life of Moses and for his people, Israel. Here's a lesson for us. God doesn't waste anything. God doesn't waste anything. God uses the good, he uses the bad, he uses the painful, he uses the ugly of our history to train us, to prepare us for his purposes. I went to the University of Michigan and I got an engineering degree. And, uh, you know, I was studying advanced physics and uh, advanced calculus and differential equations and all kinds of insane things that my life right now, it, it has no connection to that world, right? I mean, I, thinking about sitting in my office and doing differential equations today, I mean, I'd rather stab my eye out with a fork. <laughs> so why did God send me to the University of Michigan to get an engineering degree? I ask myself that question often. Why did he do that? Then I read this story. And I think, my goodness, God wastes absolutely nothing. Not one bit of our past goes unused. Not one bit of our history is squandered. God is the great orchestrator, and he uses all things in our life, even and especially the painful parts, to shape us for something amazing, something profound in front of us. Can you believe that? Do you trust him for that? Brothers and sisters. So now we get to the end of chapter 2. And in these last three verses, we see God's smile. It's no longer hidden. It starts to come out. So let me read these verses for you. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out in their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So here we are. We're zooming out from Moses' story, and all all of a sudden we re-engaging with Israel. And Israel here again is waiting for decades, for centuries, for God to come through. And so they cry out to God. They finally cry out to God. Now, some of you are waiting too right now. Some of you are waiting for something, waiting for relief from pain. Some of you are waiting for a baby. Some of you are waiting for a job, waiting for a prodigal child to return home, waiting for a friend to return to his senses. There's not a lot you can do. Maybe that's how you feel, but you can cry out to God. You can cry out to God and he'll hear you. He doesn't mind your cries. In fact, it's a very healthy thing for you to do, to lament. In fact, some people would say, um, crying out to God, isn't that, 
Isn't that an expression of distrust? Doesn't that show that you're not really trusting God? No. If you're truly crying out to God, it's a deep and profound expression of trust in God when you're going through heartache and pain. You know, if you're helping a hurting friend, maybe you don't need to say much, but maybe, maybe you simply learn to weep with those who weep, as Paul said. Maybe that's your task. In these last few verses, Moses, the author, makes explicit what he has been implying, implying throughout this chapter. Verse 24, God heard, God remembered. Now, that doesn't mean that he forgot. It means that he's bringing to mind something for the purpose of taking action. God looked on them, and God was concerned for them. God hasn't forgotten his people. He hasn't turned a blind eye and a deaf ear. He's so compassionate, and he is getting ready to take direct action. We're going to see that starting in Exodus chapter 3. You know, we must realize, brothers and sisters, that we may not see God's hidden smile in our lifetime as we're going through difficult things. Israel didn't see it. Many, many generations of Israelites died in the midst of this stuff. They didn't see God come through. Moses didn't see it either until he was much older and he wrote this stuff down. And we often won't see God's hidden smile in the midst of difficulties. It's so difficult to read God's providence correctly, right? Most of the time, we, don't, we won't know why bad stuff happens to us. We won't see the why until maybe years later or decades later. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, we may never know why this side of heaven. What we can be confident of in the midst of all of this is that God is still working. As one pastor has said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may only be aware of three of them. What we see is only a tiny fraction of what God is doing in our lives. Just a tiny fraction. And the part we see may not even make sense to us. But our job isn't to make sense out of divine providence. Our job is not to know the ins and outs of divine providence. Our job is simply to believe in divine providence. That God is good and that he's working good for his people. That's our job. You know, there's another place where we see God's hidden smile. The death and the resurrection of Jesus. At the cross, the the clouds could not have been any thicker. Those days could not have been, those hours could not have been any darker. Things couldn't have been worse off. Jesus' defeat seemed imminent. Satan looks like he's about to win. But behind the frowning providence of the cross, God hid a big smile. In fact, God saved his biggest smile. God saved his most delicious wink for the cross of Jesus and at the tomb of Jesus. Because there, God saved sinners precisely when Satan thought he had won. And brothers and sisters, if God could do something so utterly fantastic at the cross and at the empty tomb, can he not also do something with you in your pain right now? If God could wink and grin behind those dark clouds at Golgotha, can he also be winking and smiling behind your dark clouds right now? 
Let the smile of God at the cross build up your faith in the midst of whatever you're going through right now. Let it give you hope. Let it give you joy. Because God did something profound and powerful there and back then. He can surely do it here and now with you and with me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pray for those who are hurting in this room right now. Would you bring them comfort? We pray for those who are confused right now. Would you bring them clarity? We pray for those who feel abandoned, who feel alone. Would you give them a profound sense of your presence and your love? Oh, Father, would you help us to trust in your good and perfect providence, even though we cannot see sometimes the reasons why. And Father, would you give us a a full vision of the cross and empty tomb? Would you build up our faith as we glance at the cross and at the empty tomb so that we can bless you, we can praise you, we can lift up your voice, lift up our voices in praise to you, so that we can persevere. And Father, I I pray now for those who are here who, who don't know you, who came into this sanctuary hurting and lost, with questions. Father, they want relief. Father, would you reveal to them your son Jesus? Would you give them faith in Jesus? Would you help them to repent of their sins? Would you help them to see Christ and follow him? Even now, even in this moment, would you do that? Father, make us an active people. Make us a people who do the next thing, which now means to praise you. In Christ's name, amen.